Ann Weeks is the mother of three grown children, and she remembers when they were little, her son, Paul, of course, the oldest, Teresa, the youngest, and Eileen, the middle child. From the age of about five months, Eileen showed a streak of independence. She refused to let anyone feed her, determined to do things her own way. Anne said, all three of the children had fun, they worked hard, they did well in school, and so forth. But like in all homes, we had our moments. We had our disagreements. We had our discussions. With the oldest and the youngest, we seemed to work things out pretty well, cleared the air, but not so with Eileen. She would immediately object, stomp her feet up the stairs, slam her door, and turn on her music loud as it could get. I tried to reason with her, she said, but it was no use. Talk about stress. It just made matters worse. One day, Anne tried to another tactic to connect with her daughter, Eileen, and she wrote her a letter. She told her how much she loved her, appreciated her, told her how much she valued her, that she was proud of her, and some things that just communicated love and compassion and how she longed to be able to connect with her daughter. When, her, when Eileen went to school the next day, Anne put the letter in an envelope on the bed and never heard another thing about the letter. <laughs> but she did notice that Eileen started to change a little bit. And so over the years, through the teenage years, into the college years, she would write letters to her daughter, and it did a world of good. She said a three or four letters a year. Eileen never mentioned them once. A few, a, a few years after Anne's husband passed away, Eileen got engaged. She did not want to be the overbearing mother of the bride. Everything was going just fine until about a month before the wedding when they had a, well, a disagreement. Eileen said, I am 24 years old. I am a school teacher. I am about to get married. I don't need any of your advice. So Anne wrote another letter. A few days before the wedding, Eileen was at home with her mom, and they were packing up all of her things to move into the home that she and her husband-to-be would, would purchase. And Eileen said, Mom, there's one box in the back corner of my closet that you please don't throw away. And in that box are all those letters you wrote to me. I want to share them with my daughter today. Thank you, Mom. And Anne said, thank you, Mom. Perhaps you can identify with this story. 
there's a disconnect between you and a family member or a friend or a work, a co-worker or even somebody at church. Just can't seem to agree on anything, can't even agree to disagree sometimes. Things either end in an argument or avoidance. Nothing seems to change. What to do? First, know that you are not alone. If relationships and dealing with other people can cause stress in your life sometimes, that means you and I are normal. We all deal with it. As Christians, we believe that we are created for relationship, and following Jesus is all about being in relationship. But we also know that relationships can be stressful. I read a study from the American Psychological Association that said 44% of Americans identified relationships as either very significant stressors or somewhat significant stress in their lives. Not just romantic relationships, but friendship relationships, relationships with children, and so forth. Parents seem to have more stress than those without children, but relationships in general were considered stressful. During this message series here at Huguenot Road Baptist Church this spring, we have been focusing on how to live with less stress. We've acknowledged that it's impossible to live with no stress, but with God's help, we can live with less stress. Last Sunday, we talked about our schedules and looked at some tools to help there. The next couple of weeks, we'll focus on our finances and our decision-making. But today, we're focusing on dealing with other people, our relationships. And there are a few tools that we might be able to apply to our relationships to help them to be more peaceful and less stressful. With God's help, we can remove as many stressors as possible from our relationships, and we can handle the ones that remain. We're going to take a look back at this passage in Ephesians for some application, both as individuals and as a congregation. We're all in relationship as the body of Christ, so I think they'll help us in both individual and corporate ways. Paul was writing to a young church in Ephesus. The theme of the letter, if you read through it, is unity, trying to help the people to come together as one body under one Lord, one faith, one baptism. Probably the church was about six years old as the time Paul is writing. Many of the believers were immature in their faith, young Christians. You probably heard me read at verse 25 the word, therefore, It's referring to previous passages in verse 17 through 24, in which Paul makes the point that followers of Jesus should no longer walk as the Gentiles walk. They are to live different. Gentiles is a term Paul used for unbelievers. Paul desired that his young congregation could see that following Jesus means walking differently from the rest of the world, including their relationships. That's because the truth of the gospel is that when Jesus Christ comes to live in our hearts, he changes the way we live from the inside out. As you heard Pastor Philip say, we, on the back of our worship bulletin, HRBC offers life-changing worship experiences. When we are in worship, God 
speaks to the heart and we are changed. And part of this is what Paul is speaking to the Ephesians about. That because they are followers of Jesus, they are to live differently than people who do not know the Lord Jesus. The presence of Jesus should radically change how we relate to other people. With this in mind, I'd like to share just a few practical helps, and some of them are in the form of questions. How can we experience God's unshakable peace in our relationships? I need help in this area. We all need help in this area. First, I would say, acknowledge that we can't fix them. How often in my relationships over the years have I looked at the other person and said their responsibility, it's about them, instead of looking in the mirror about what I can or what I need to change in my life. We cannot fix them. We've got to allow God to work on us. So in verse 25, am I being honest in the relationship? Put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor. We are all members of one body. Am I being honest in whatever relationship that is? Speaking truth in love, not condescending or judging or condemning, but am I being honest in that relationship? Verses 26 and 27, am I harboring anger about the past? In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you're still angry. Do not give the devil a foothold. When we continue to bring up the past, we give the devil a foothold in our relationships, and that can only cause strife and discontent. Am I focused on what I can get or what I can give? Verse 28, anyone who's been stealing must steal no longer. Sometimes Paul is, I believe he's saying in our relationships, we are only out to get something from somebody else as opposed to giving in the relationship, a give and receive. It's not about just what can I get from that person, but how can I give? Verse 29, am I looking for opportunities to speak grace? Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, Paul writes, but only what is helpful for building others up. And in verse 31 and 32, am I dealing with this relationship in my own strength or am I inviting God into it to take control? Paul writes, get rid of all bitterness, rage and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, just as Christ, in Christ, God forgave you. We've got to work on us and trust them with the Lord. The, the next three are very quick. I've adapted them from Stephen Covey's book, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective Families. So number two, on if you're taking notes, is think win-win, which is the root. It's the golden rule. Do to others as you would have them do to you. Think win-win. It's not about what I want. How can we together seek what is best? If we engage the golden rule in our relationships, we will be about that. 
the fundamental paradigm of mutual benefit is the golden rule. So let us think win-win. The next is seek first to understand and then to be understood. Covey says this is the root. If win-win is, is the root, R-O-O-T, understanding and then seeking to be understood is the root, R-O-U-T-E. It's the path for reconciliation and healthy relationships. He says this is the pathway that leads to rich independent interaction, the ability to step out of our own perspective and really get into the head and heart of someone else. It's living with empathy. As we say in our North Star guiding statement on the inside of your program, I can uh, turn you to that. Loving, understanding, and empathizing with the community and the world. Empathy, walking in someone else's shoes, is a key to healthy relationships. And then the last one is synergize. He says this is the fruit. This is the yield. When we are focusing on win-win, seeking first to understand and then to be understood, the fruit is synergy. It's greater than we could ever do on our own. The result or the end product, the rich reward of the effort, not your way or my way, but a better way. Today, as you heard both Jacob and Bob, Jacob on the piano and Bob on the organ, there was a synergy there. It wasn't just one instrument playing. It was a synergy. It was rich. It was beautiful. And together in our relationships, if we think this way, thinking win-win, thinking about how we can empathize, the, the reward is so rich and great. It reminds me of a story of two women, Margaret and Ruth. In the spring of 1983, Margaret Patrick arrived at a retirement community where she would be living. She had recently had a stroke. One of the staff members there was introducing Margaret to people in the center, and she noticed that when Margaret saw the piano that she had a, just a sad look on her face, and she asked her about that. And she said, well, just seeing that piano brings back memories. Before my stroke, music was everything to me. And then the activity director noticed that Margaret's right hand was not usable. She said, wait just a minute. And the activity director went and got Ruth and introduced Ruth to Margaret. Ruth used a walker. She was white-haired, thick glasses. Activity director says, Margaret Patrick, meet Ruth Eisenberg. Both played piano. Both had had a stroke. Miss Eisenberg had a good right hand. Miss Patrick had a good left hand. And the activity director said, I think that together you two could do something wonderful. Ruth looked at Margaret and said, do you know Chopin's waltz in D flat? Margaret nodded. Side by side, the two sat at the piano bench, two healthy hands, one with long, graceful black fingers, the other with short, plump white ones, moving rhythmically across the ebony and ivory keys. 
And since that day, they together played keyboards hundreds of times. Margaret's helpless right hand around Ruth's back. Ruth's helpless left hand on Margaret's knee. While Ruth's good hand plays the melody and Margaret's good hand plays the accompaniment. Their music played on television. Uh, They were interviewed for different magazines and so forth. They played around at different rehab centers. On the piano bench, more than music has been shared by these two. They were both widows. They both had lost a son. They had both experienced a stroke. Both had much to give, but neither could give without the other. Margaret would say, my music was taken away, but God gave me Ruth. And Ruth said, it was God's miracle that brought us together. A reporter gave them the names Ebony and Isaac. Perhaps you've read about them. They're both past now, of course. But that name stuck. The two made music together, hand in hand, for about a decade. It's been said, we are each of us angels with only one wing, and we can only fly embracing the other. Paul wrote to the Corinthians, now you are the body of Christ, and each one of you is a part of it. And Jesus said, a new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you shall love one another. By this, everyone will know you are my disciples if you love one another. 